0: Welcome back to the Wildlife Explorer, a podcast by Essex Wildlife Trust, where we aim to inspire a lifelong love of nature. On today's episode, we have a very special guest here to talk about her new book and the stories of endangered species in their fight to come back from the brink. She's a zoologist, photographer, author and wildlife presenter. It is Megan McCubbin. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me. I was excited watching you on spring watch. I liked the lizard scene that you did.
1: Yeah, no, it was good fun. It's always a lot of fun.
0: Well, you've obviously had a huge achievement recently, your book. Congratulations. I absolutely loved it. For anyone that might not know, can you tell us what your book is called and what it's about?
1: Sure. This most recent one uh, is called An Atlas of Endangered Species and it highlights 19 species around the world all on the brink of extinction. Um, And the premise of it was that I wanted to speak to as many different people as possible who really work and understand these animals, understand their habitats, understand um, what's working in their conservation and what most importantly isn't, what's putting them on that brink line. Um, So I I chatted with people from all over the world about um, these really somewhat bizarre and others that are well-known animals and um you know i really kind of wanted to get to grips about how we can save a species and pull them back from that situation um so it's lots of conversations lots of kind of science about some weird and wonderful animals um and a plant can't forget the plants um and it's all about you know how we can all do our, our piece to to pull them and other species back from the brink because the rate of extinction is massively increased due to human activity um so it's all about that and hopefully people will read it and um you know feel that they can do something
0: i do think you did it really well because you've got such powerful messaging in the book the reality of the extinction crisis but at the same time it's such a wonderful easy reading book <laughs> which you wouldn't expect from such hard-hitting material. And I think part Mm -hmm. of what made it so easy to read was how you formatted it to make it dyslexia-friendly as well. Why was it so important for you to make sure that the book was dyslexia-friendly?
1: Well, I I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was seven years old, um, and I really struggled in school in various different areas um, because, you know, I I was put on you know the the lower ranking classes um you know I was put on I overheard a teacher once say that they I was sat on the stupid table um you know people would hand me a book and I just would be instantly terrified of it I just didn't want to open the pages because I just knew that I couldn't read at the pace that everyone else could read at I couldn't like read out loud was just terrifying I could do it in my own space but not in front of people um because I just feel very self-conscious about that. Um, So I just knew that I I worked in a different way Um, and and I didn't want that with this book. I didn't want a dyslexic person or anyone with any kind of neurodiversity to be handed this book and to feel intimidated by it. That is not the aim of it. The aim is to get the message out there about these species. So um, when we first started talking about the book, I I was talking to the publishers and I said, I'd like to make this as dyslexia friendly as possible. So we did a lot of research into the best fonts, the best style, the best spacing to use, the best colours. Um, and I think it has, like for me, I opened the book and I don't feel immediately terrified of it, um, which says something because still some books today I'll open and I'll be like, no, can't tackle that. I'm going to get the audio book. <laughs> um, but some books I can tackle and it very much depends on how it's printed. But I've spoken to people without dyslexia who haven't noticed necessarily, other than the fact it's in the introduction, haven't necessarily noticed it's an accessible book um, by looking at it but they found it easier to read on their eyes. I think the style is, I mean, you wouldn't notice, it's not like been written in size, you know, 50 font. It's not that you would notice that it's been, you know, styled differently. It's just easier on the eyes for absolutely everybody. Um, and I think all books should really be printed like that because they're such a fantastic resource of information, of stories, um, of, well, you know, empowerment. These books are, books are really important, but, they're not accessible to everybody because of either, you know, people feeling very low in confidence to read a book because of how they were treated at school and told that they couldn't do it and they were too stupid to do it or whatever it may be, or the fact that they do still struggle with reading and things like that. So if we make books accessible to everybody, then everybody's got an opportunity to learn, to feel empowered by them. And personally, if if every book was written, you know in that kind of dyslexic friendly style then I probably wouldn't have had the issue with books that I have today um so that was my aim and I thought that was really important to, important to talk about because as a dyslexic the idea of writing a book still absolutely terrifies me I can barely believe I've done one <laughs> or two um but I just don't, I don't want anyone to feel the way that I did getting books I know there's hundreds of people one in ten people that have dyslexia and I don't want one in ten people to be terrified of books
0: so, and I yeah. have actually seen on social so many people, I mean, non dyslexics as well, but dyslexic people that have said how incredible your book is and so much easier it is to read. What was it like when you got your first final copy of the book or when you saw it in the shop for the first time?
1: Very surreal because, I mean, you pour your heart and soul into projects like these. Um you you know do your best and you work i mean i i wrote that book over a space of 2 years so uh, cuz i was doing other things as well you know I was working on other projects so it was very much kind of um i i struggle i couldn't just find like an hour on the train to write i need like a whole day of no distractions to immerse myself in it so i mean you you spend so much time on it and then to kind of talk about the cover get the cover approved um you get kind of a digital version of what it will look like but actually what it looks like in print is very different from the digital version so yeah it kind of catches you off guard a little bit um when you see it for the first time but no it's it's very exciting and you feel you know your hours and hours and <laughs> years in my case of um you know of, of writing has kind of come and made something which is very weird and wonderful and um yeah it's it's a very proud moment and you just hope it's going to look as good <laughs> in paper as it does on the screen um and yeah, no, I was really thrilled.
0: It is a visually very beautiful book with all the illustrations. It's got Proud Place under my coffee table.
1: To thank Emily Robertson for that, because she did lots of the colours and illustrations. So I couldn't do that. I couldn't do all the drawings, but she did an amazing job.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant. Now your writing is obviously incredibly powerful in highlighting the endangerment of many species. Can you tell us what's significant about current declines or the sixth mass extinction event? As it's
1: known yeah so extinction is just as normal part of life as life itself we need extinction extinction is very important it makes space for new species to evolve um, it creates new niches and new areas where species can expand into whether that be you know habitat you know ranges or diet whatever it may be um So extinction is incredibly important for life to persist. However, the rate at which things are going extinct now is somewhere between 10 to 1,000 times greater than it was before humans started behaving the way that humans behave. Um, So we are accelerating that extinction rate a lot faster. Basically, we are changing the habitat, the climate, the landscape so much that species are unable to evolve fast enough to cope with those changes. Um, And therefore, we are losing either for that reason, climate change, for direct persecution, for whatever it may be. Um, We are losing three species every single hour, it's estimated. And some of those species are species that we haven't even got to know yet. We don't even know they exist and we're losing them before we even know what they look like, know how ecologically important they are. They're just gone. Um, and we you know, are never lucky enough to have known them and to learn from them. And that's quite scary because every you know, species is an important link in a connected web. And if you lose one, then potentially that web starts to fail. Um, so we really need to be looking at the biodiversity crisis as much as the climate crisis. The two, for me, are very interlinked. There is not one without the other. Um, they are, for me, the same thing. Um, so once we start taking joints out of that web then you know we're not only threatening the future of these animals we're threatening our future because we can't exist without them um so we really need to look at the way that we are pushing species towards the brink and figure out ways to pull them back fast and there's lots of different methods to do that you know everything from community conservation um focusing on the species on our own doorstep first um to very much jurassic park style (laughs) conservation Uh, as is the case for example the northern white rhino um the kakapo is an endemic parrot new zealand it's um one of the heavily managed populations i've ever known um you know all these different you know tactics that we can use to pull these amazing animals back um but we need to get on with it fast and tackle the bigger problem that they're all facing which is climate change we need to focus on you know restoring and protecting this landscape so that every species has a chance because that's something that we can all do is just limit our impact um and then you know we can save species on our own doorstep but even further afield without even knowing it
0: yeah the kakapo helmet was definitely a new method of conservation that i hadn't heard of before if anyone hasn't read megan's book i recommend buying it just to learn about that method of conservation or looking up helmet
1: Great sperm helmet. Um, yeah, they tried lots of different things, some worked, some didn't, but it's all part of the fun of guessing and trial and error.
0: Well, there you go. (laughs) But obviously, each species has its own story of how it's got into the state that it has, and you detail lots of things over its overexploitation or habitat loss or disease. And one of the diseases that I am so pleased that you mentioned in your book because I remember learning about it at university and just thinking, how on earth did I not know about this before? And that is chytridiomycosis or chytrid fungus, which in your book, I believe you say it's the biggest disease threat to biodiversity. And it's obviously a huge threat to amphibians. Yet outside of the conservation sector, people seem to rarely know about it. Why do you think that that is?
1: I think we've just gone through a pandemic. I think we're all very nervous. I mean, we've got the bird flu situation at the moment, avian influenza um, that's jumped over into mammals, it's in otters, it's in, um, it got into that mink farm, that fur farm, which was pretty, well, a terrible situation anyway, let alone throwing avian flu into there. Um, You know, and we're not talking about that either, even the fact that it's about three mutations away from people we're very scared when it comes to viruses and diseases we're very nervous and until it becomes a human threat a life human threat we don't really react very quickly um which is sad i mean chytrid is a is a terrible fungal d- virus um and it's uh, it kind of lives in the water body and then it gets into tadpoles of amphibians and frogs um and then as the, the frogs develop it becomes very life threatening in their adult form and it is a really really nasty thing um and it was created, we think, by us. Like there's been a lot of research into how Kitrid originated. And they think it was because of the movement of bullfrogs around the world. And originally, um, to make pregnancy tests for people, we experimented using bullfrogs. So we moved them all around the world, and this eventually, because of the cross contamination of all these bullfrogs, created, we think, Kitrid. Um, but we don't really understand how, and if that is hundred percent the answer of why it originated, but that's a kind of scientist's best guess in the minute, or one of the theories, one of the hypotheses. So, you know, we created this horrible disease, and it's wiping out amphibians worldwide, all over the world. It's, it's jumped around, um, and loads of frogs are on the brink of extinction because of it. Um, and I knew I wanted to include it in there. A friend of mine, um, her dad is a professor who works with frogs and chytrid, And so I've known about it, you know, for, for a little while, learning through her and him. And um, yeah, I just, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know exactly which species because so many are threatened by chytrid. I didn't know which one to choose. So um, I've reached out to Dr. Jonathan Colby, who's the most amazing scientist, actually. I'm quite jealous of all of his work. He's, he's like the best frog guy ever, but he also does a lot of stuff with illegal wildlife trade. Um, you know, and he's done, doing this pioneering um, research with the ex- exquisite spike thumb frog in the Cusco's National Park. Which is a cloud forest, um, and you know he's trying to save the species, well, three species at a time by bringing some into captivity, basically increasing um, natural selection, helping natural selection along its way, and, and trying to increase the resilience of these populations. So, yeah, it's 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 a trial and error thing. Will it work? We still don't know. But you know, if it does, then it could be a very pioneering way to help these species. But until it becomes a human threat, we're not going to react to it as fast. And, and I also had a similar conversation. Um, talking about canine distemper uh, with African wild dogs um, with another amazing scientist called Rosie and again it's the same issue that you know we're having all these problems with disease in animals because we've moved animals around and kind of created breeding ground for these diseases and viruses Um, or we put domestic dogs into the situation which spread it or whatever reason it may be but until it impacts human health unfortunately we're quite slow to move and react but it might hit human health at some point, and in which case we'll you know find a vaccine and lock down the same way again, probably. But I think there's probably a lot more of that in our future, very sadly, and it's terrifying to watch it all unfold. But um, yeah, I mean, for trade, I think we're a way to go, but there's other things that are quite pressing. But um, But there's loads of amazing people doing some amazing work that could limit that. So hopefully, you know, we're hot on the solutions now. We've just gone through COVID, so we know what to do, but it's just a case of getting it done quickly.
0: And I do think, as you mentioned, some of those amazing scientists really helped to give a bit of hope when reading the book. And to be honest, gave a bit of job envy as well. Every project yeah. you went through, I was like, oh, I'd love to help work with that one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly the same thing. <laughs> one of the projects that, as you said, was very Jurassic Park-like is that of the Northern White Rhino. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um. The Northern white rhino is an, an amazing species that has had a very uh, troubled history. Um, they are, well, functionally extinct. That's the first thing to say about them is that they are no longer a functionally working population, because the last male died in 2018. His name was Sudan, um, and when he died, it hit, you know, wild headlines that this species now, you know, can no longer reproduce on its own, because there were only two females left. Naljin and Fatu, who are mum and daughter. Um, and yeah, they live in Olpegita, Olpegita, they live in Olpegeta Conservancy in Kenya, and they are guarded 24 7. They're probably, you know, the most vulnerable rhinos in the world. And once they go, the species will be officially extinct, be long gone. Um, and that's due to, you know, long a long history of persecution for rhino horn, as well as habitat. Uh, reduction so you know scientists were like okay we could either let these species slip through the net or we can do what we do best and we can fight like hell to keep them here so that's what they decided to do um so lots of scientists from around europe kind of collaborated to um get some of the eggs out of one of the females uh najin Fatu sadly is uh older she was deemed not fit enough for egg retrieval very sadly so it meant that the future of a species left was left on you know the shoulders of one female which is a huge pressure to bear um so they retrieved eggs from najin um and then they took them back to the lab and fertilized them with sperm that has been frozen from other males going back you know the last 100 years um and now they have frozen embryos in a freezer um which will be ready to be implanted into a surrogate so they'll Once they've perfected the technique they'll implant an embryo into a southern white female um uterus so that the southern white female will grow this northern white baby birth it and and kind of help to rear it so it's quite out there as a theory um and it's quite intensive obviously and you, you know, you do have to ask yourself the ethical question sometimes, you know, is it better to learn from our, our mistakes, hold our hands up and say, yeah, okay, we messed this one up. Let's not make the same mistakes with, you know, the next rhino species, whether it be, you know, Sumatran rhino, Javan rhino. Um, let's, let's not make the same mistakes with these ones. We don't have to go to these levels and we don't have to spend this money on this. Um, or do we do we do all these processes to keep them here? Um Especially when, you know, you have to ask yourself, is there enough habitat to support them and all this kind of stuff? And the persecution threat is still high. There are still rhinos being killed all the time. I, I work with an organisation called Helping Rhinos, and they had a, a young orphan calf come in yesterday from a rhino poaching attack. So the threat is still very much real, especially for a calf, which is going to get, if, when when it's born, worldwide media attention. um, So be heavily prized. So yeah, you have to kind of weigh up the pros and cons and the ethics of these kind of things. But that's where I think the conversation gets quite interesting. Um, with the northern white rhino, I think there's still validity in in doing what's hap- what's happening, um, for sure, because you know we owe it to them. We drove them to that point. We owe it to them to bring them back if we can. And, and they're not quite gone yet. If they would, if both females were gone, then I maybe think slightly differently. But the fact that we've still got two females here, we owe it to them to to do what we can to try and save their species. So, yeah, but I hope we learn from our lessons from these two and we don't have to go to the same extreme lengths for the next species that finds itself on that brink.
0: I found it really heart-wrenching reading the section in that Northern White Rhino chapter from, I believe his name was James. The rhino- James Miranda. Yes, the rhino <laughs> keeper of the last male rhino and he was talking about what it was like to lose him. It was yeah. really emotive. That was a
1: hard read. Um, yeah. yeah. He's very powerful with words, James. And um, he had a real special connection with Sudan, the last remaining male. He looked after him all the time, cared for him, you know, brought people in to meet him and, and was just basically Sudan's voice. And um, yeah, when Sudan died, I think it was really hard on him. It, it, broke, it broke his heart. He never expected to be working with the last remaining northern white rhino male. And he didn't really, I think, at the start of conserving him and looking after him, didn't really understand what it meant. And I think the the bigger connection he had with Sudan, um, the bigger weight that he personally felt. But, I mean, James is doing amazing things now. He's going out and he's, you know, talking to people. He's He's gone around and spoken to governments. He's talking to, oh, God, loads of different changemakers about rhinos and about, you know, the impact that we can all have to try and protect them. Um, so yeah he's become a really inspirational voice in all of this having gone through losing Sudan Um, he's no longer at Olpegeta he's doing various different tours and things but um, yeah he's a he's a he's a great man with a heart of gold but uh, a heavy weight you know on his shoulders
0: I think one thing that really struck me especially when reading the book is you've mentioned already the ethical dilemmas of conservation solutions with that example But I think it can be very complicated, not as clear cut as it may appear on the outside to find solutions that are actually going to realistically work, especially when local people are involved. Did you find that struck you when you were writing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always tricky. And I think the solutions are always with the local people. You know, solutions are with the indigenous voices. They know Land better than any westerner coming in with fancy science techniques and it very much varies from place to place and and whilst there are many different issues and they range between species and between habitats and everything um you know there is a lot of common ground that comes out when you know i've got to speak to all these scientists and um, and funding seems to be one of the biggest issues is that funding gets allocated to the more um sexy new projects as opposed to the long-term studies that have been going on for years so funding gets moved and long-term studies get dropped for new science that will last you know come out in three years and we'll say okay this species is extinct we've just found that out moving on to the next species and then it's like okay thank you for telling us this species is extinct what's going to happen with it what conservation work is going to be used but by that point the money's already moved to the next sexy headline um without really having any much tangible impact on the ground that's one of the biggest impacts i think actually um is is the funding of conservation and science is a massive issue um but then you know it is also the fact that you know indigenous people don't have the rights to protect their land like they should do and have the autonomy to make the decisions about how to look after these species um and, and i think that's you know yeah one of the one of the critical issues that we face
0: Yeah, it's quite difficult, isn't it? To know which species to prioritise—a massive dilemma. I think you know when you when
1: you're saving one. I mean, there's so many different things. You know, you've got the keystone species, which kind of represent more than just themselves. You know, the rhinos are an example of that. They're kind of ecosystem engineers, and the way that they manage that habitat. Um, you know, and by looking after rhinos, you're looking after multiple species. You know, around them. Um, so there's a lot of that, but it is hard to choose. I mean, I found that choosing which species to put in the book really impossible um but you know we start we start with one you know and lots of people want it to be the biggest stuff the elephants or the orcas all that kind of stuff um but we can't forget about the exquisite spike thumb frog and we can't forget about the glowworms and everything else so um yeah it's it it takes an army (laughs) to do it
0: no definitely now on a bit of a lighter note in your book you describe a wildlife encounter that would be an ultimate bucket list experience for me and you've not seen this just once you've seen it twice i believe and that is a pangolin Mm. what was that experience like
1: yeah amazing i mean pangolins are amazing creatures and um yeah i'm very much obsessed with them they're incredible mammals uh they're the only true scaled mammal and they live um well there's some species that live in asia some species that live in africa (laughs) And I never thought I'd get to see one. I was very lucky that I got to go and work out in Namibia uh, when I was 17 years old for a couple of months, um, helping to do kind of some big cat conservation. And a lot of the guides there at the time, were, you know, have been working there for 10, 15 years and said that they'd never seen a pangolin. So I quickly gave up hope. I didn't think, well, if they haven't, then I'm certainly not going to be able to see one. Um, but we were driving along one day and... Um, when my guide at the time, Rowan, who's become a very good friend of mine, he's a fantastic guide out in Namibia, he was like, wait, that rock is moving, <laughs> when we stopped the car, um, and there was a pangolin kind of just on our left hand side, and the excitement was amazing, it was just, yeah, the most incredible experience, and um, yeah, I've been lucky to, to see them kind of a number of times. in in various different places. I actually went and filmed with them uh, back at that same reserve because they got um, a scientist who I interviewed in the book, Kelsey Preger. She came back to do a pangolin study because they realised they had some pangolins on the reserve. So they brought her on board to kind of help monitor them. And at this point, no one really understood anything about pangolins. We didn't understand how, you know, how they were in terms of their breeding, in terms of their, you know, what habitat specifications they need. Um, Everyone knew that they were not very well adapted to life in captivity because whenever they tried to put a camp a pangolin in captivity it inevitably failed because pangolins are very picky when it comes to their diet they'll have a specific species of ant or termite depending on the specific season the specific temperatures and everything else so you can't really keep them in captivity so people have tried before and failed um, so no one really knew anything about them because initially how we learned about animals was to was to take them, which was um, you know, a, a sad a sad reality. But that's how we kind of initially learned about things was through zoos and everything else. Um but yeah, so but they're hard to monitor in the wild, they're nocturnal, so um, you know, we have to be up all night, which is totally fine, but they also go through very dense bush. So it added to the mystery of these incredible animals. And she got some amazing footage of them, of their young coming out of the burrows and everything like that. So She was a um kind of a pioneer in pangolin conservation and um yeah it it was just you know one of those experiences we have to kind of pinch yourself that you're seeing a pangolin for the first time it was amazing great oh wow that's incredible
0: now i'm actually sat here and there's a house plant behind me and there's a section in your book when you talk about the orchid and to be honest i hadn't considered it much before and that is the plant poaching and the problems associated with the house plant craze. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I had no idea about it either. It was news to me and, um, I was devastated to learn more about it. So, you know, we can't forget plants. Plants are incredibly important and w- we love them. We love our gardening. It's good for our mental health. We love putting plants inside our houses. I mean, I've got, I mean, i have turned around. I've got loads of plants over that way. Down there. the <laughs> wow. so. whole, whole, um whole tidy but yeah there's plants everywhere in my house and I've always had lots of plants I love greenery you know basically if I can bring the outdoors inside I will do (laughs) because I'm much more comfortable in the outdoors um but yeah I you know I think we all became even more obsessed with houseplants during the pandemic um but what I didn't realize at that time was that it was being renamed the plant-demic because people were buying houseplants we couldn't really go out at this point in time obviously we'd go do our food shopping and go out for an hour but we couldn't really go into, you know, garden centre or anything like that. So people were purchasing plants online through, you know, big social media outlets through, um, you know, I don't know what to say, but like lots of just, you know, online shopping areas. And um, this was driving the demand for rare and exotic plants that were grown in the wild. Um, and now most house plants are propagated; they are, you know, grown in the country where you probably bought them in a big greenhouse somewhere that um, simulates the the growing conditions of wherever the plant is naturally from however there are some plants that are taken from the wild and flown all over the world to get to your house um, and some of these plants are endangered some of them are very rare um, and it's basically it's, it's plant poaching um, and it's an illegal thing to do but it's it's become a huge huge issue there's a, a species of succulent in america which grows on the rock face Um, which has nearly been entirely wiped out because of people's demand for it Um, and I interviewed a scientist called Punky Prachama he lives in Indonesia and he is one of the most delightful gorgeous human beings on the planet I absolutely adore Punky and the work that he's doing he's um, the most selfless man I've ever met and he basically has spent everything he owns every penny in his pocket on a greenhouse in the middle of the rainforest where he is taking in rare orchids and everything um so that they don't get poached. He's propagating them and putting more back out into the wild. Um, and he's going undercover with plant poachers and all of <laughs> this kind of stuff to kind of get into this trade and understand what it means. Um and he he found a rare orchid and there were a couple of them in this one tiny remote site in the middle of the Indonesian rainforest. Um and he had to, you know, basically acknowledge this orchid was there online on this kind of recording database. And within the space of a couple of weeks, it was poached and it was disappeared. It had gone from the wild and it was found for sale on the black market two days later and um, being sold to either the UK, America or wherever. So we're driving, you know, demand for these species in the wild. Um, uh, and prices go up if it's wild caught or um, I say caught, you know, in inverted commas, because, you know, catching a plant is a weird phenomenon. But that's what we call it. If it's wild, wild plucked, maybe that's better. That kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, our our demand for having house plants, obviously, we we expect them to be grown in greenhouses here, but actually, don't think of the impact it has on the wild populations. You know where these plants originated from, where they came from. Um, and I had I I was sat talking on a Zoom with Punky, and he said that plant behind you that originated from Indonesia, and my heart sank because I didn't know what the situation was. Um, luckily, he said that it was easily propagated, so it was probably propagated in the UK. However, originally that plant would have been in, from Indonesia and you don't want to be damaging the rainforest by having the plants in your house all the way in America, Australia, the UK, um, wherever it may be. So, yeah, it's a big issue that we don't, we're not talking about anywhere near enough. And it's quite, um, yeah, it's, it makes total sense when you think about it, that, of course, these plants have to be coming from somewhere. Um, and some of them, you know, some of them sell for thousands of pounds, you know, on social media. Um, yeah, and the the more money you're you're looking at, you know, the more chances are it's a rare one, um, probably wild caught. But you can look on the descriptions and see what it says on the hashtags and try and tell whether whether you think it's been wild caught or not. So now we're about buy a house plant. I'm looking at exactly where it was grown. I won't
0: buy it if it doesn't say. Now there's a story in your book that really struck me because I could so imagine going on a holiday and asking my family to do the same thing and them just being horrified. (laughs) And that is the giraffe story while you were on a safari. Can you tell me a bit about that experience and was it worth it?
1: I've always been interested in kind of... um what well, my mum would probably call quite gross things and um, I've always been fascinated by like predators I've always found them really really interesting I, I kind of studied like um, a, a lot of predators when I was kind of doing a lot of my science training and um, I'm just interested by how predators move you know what they go for all this kind of stuff I used to have praying mantises in my bedroom in tanks um, and you know they're, they're phenomenal predators and I used to kind of you know enjoy watching them and figuring out how they move so I've always been interested in that aspect of biology and um we were oh, i was my i think i can't remember how old i was must've been about 6 or 7 maybe um i have to double check in the book i'm sure it says it accurately in there um but yeah i was i was quite young and i was on my way to kenya and we were going to kenya for um was my first time in africa uh we were going there cuz um my family kind of supported a young girl through school in in a remote kenyan village and she was getting married. She'd gone through school and everything and she invited us to go to the wedding. So obviously we kind of all jumped at the chance. It was a real honour to be invited and you know we'd always kind of kept in touch with her and everything, but I'd never met her. I'd heard lots about her, I'd never met her. And um, so it was all really exciting that we were going to go to Kenya and, and, and do all this. And um, we kind of arrived there and I had, well, I was whisked away from my mum within the first like five minutes. I think my mum was really panicking because we arrived at this village and I was just taken off. And um, Chris and Mum were told to go, you know, to the church, and I was taken to the bridal party, and I had this massive bridesmaid dress put on me with this veil and everything, and it was it was an amazing experience, and everyone thought that that would be the highlight of the trip, where I got to dress up like a bride and you know have a great time in in this wedding party in this massive village Kenyan wedding, which was phenomenal, and it was definitely a massive massive highlight, and I'm very grateful for that kind of whirlwind experience. However, when I got back, there was a different highlight which kind of stood out. And that was when we ended up going on safari after the wedding we found this dead giraffe, and it was lying in the middle of the plains. It had obviously just died. there was you know no predators on it at this point, and its stomach hadn't started to expand um normally with dead things that you get all the gases in the stomach expand, and the stomach gets larger and larger till eventually it bursts and um that is eventually what happened um so we I was just enforcing every single day we had to go and see this old rotting well, increasingly rotting dead giraffe and um the stomach kept expanding and expanding and one day it popped and we weren't there for the actual popping of the stomach we missed that very sadly. although my mother will probably very delighted about that and um, but we arrived one day to the stench of it and it was just the most disgusting smell ever and um it was probably at that point that i think everyone wanted to turn back and and say right we'll go and find doesn't see something else um but i was pretty adamant that we had to stay because that just meant that one thing was on its way and that was all the predators because the smell was in the air you know and um yeah that was a, a really fun moment um getting to watch all these like jackals and hyenas and vultures coming down to feed on this old giraffe and um, I'd say it was 100% worth it. I can remember that giraffe very, very well, as well as I can the wedding. So it was a very poignant moment uh, for a very young, young person. Um, but yeah, I was always fascinated by that kind of stuff. So I'd say it was worth it. My mum would probably say something very different. But, um, you know, she, she, I'm sure she's, uh, she enjoyed the experience through me, or at least I hope she
0: did. Oh, gosh. I bet you can remember the smell quite well as well, to be honest. <laughs>
1: yeah, poignant. It was, um, yeah, there was no- nothing like that giraffe
0: oh gosh now it sounds like you had um you always had that wildlife family experience but one thing I find is it can be quite difficult for me to convince family members to come along to my wildlife adventures with me for some reason going to see glowworms frogs eels isn't as appealing to some people as it is weird today. I know, weird. I know. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> but you had quite the wildlife partner in your stepfather what was it like growing up with renowned wildlife lover, Chris Packham?
1: Um, yeah, every day was very different. It was always an education. <laughs> um, that's probably the best way I can put it. We, we always had a lot of fun and um, yeah, we did a lot of educational trips and everything. It was probably, you know, him that kind of caused me to have preman. well, I really wanted all these animals I, I I always had an interest in them anyway before I met him I met him when I was two years old um but it's probably thanks to him sticking up for me that I was allowed praying mantises and everything tarantulas and snakes in my bedroom um but I'm 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 very glad that my mom there's a period of time where she could come in my bedroom because of the tarantula was in there um but that was fine for me because I was happy with my tarantula and it was great um but yeah I mean it was it was really good fun you know we're we're very good friends you know to this day and um yeah it was just no two days were the same you know whether it was an art gallery uh whether it was a mu- enough different kind of museum of some sort whether it was a wildlife trip whether it was going to the opera which he hated but he wanted to expose me to everything to see what I liked um you know whether it was a punk rock concert or whatever it was we were always doing something educational something different to kind of Get as many experiences as possible. So I do I owe him a lot. And um yeah, no, we have a lot of fun and he will always come out and see a glow one with me. So that's always handy.
0: Oh, that is brilliant. And you had a TV show together, didn't you? Chris and Megan's Wild Summer, where you had an array of wildlife experiences across the UK. What was your favourite experience from that one? Well,
1: that was tricky. That was a tricky one. Um that series was a lot of fun. We got to kind of go around the UK in in an electric camper van. Uh, although we didn't stay in the electric camper van i want to put that we're very close but we're not that close so (laughs) we were staying in hotels around and um oh do you know actually the rizzo's dolphins were great really enjoyed doing that we were able to go out on a boat and um go and see kind of a, a seabird colony and rizzo's dolphins and the aim of it was wildlife like it was to go and see wild places and meet species but it had a different more kind of conversational feel to the series we wanted it to be a little bit more of a personal thing um and we talked about various different issues, you know, societal issues, you know, mental health, um, body image, all of that kind of stuff throughout. Um, so it has like a different feel to just kind of being a wildlife shuttle. That was our aim anyway, our intention. And um, but yeah, I mean, we got to go and see loads of great species on the way. Uh, and we even got to do the the longest zip line in the UK, which is in Wales, um, so that we could feel like flying like peregrines. Um, well, that was the premise of it anyway. But it was great fun. We had a really good time filming that.
0: It was brilliant. I really recommend anyone to watch it. It's fabulous. Now, one species you have in the book, we actually have in Essex, and that is, as we've already mentioned, the glowworm. Not only do they glow, but they're also incredibly energy efficient, aren't they?
1: They are. So, you know, when you think about our, our light bulbs, they produce, as a byproduct of producing light, they produce heat. You know that when you've got to change your light bulb, you don't change it after it's been on for a few hours because you hurt your hand. And, um, you know, so that's just a uh, part of the chemical reaction of producing light is that we produce heat at the same time um glow worms on the other hand have perfected this reaction it's a reaction involving an enzyme called luciferin uh, well reacts with something called luciferase and then uh, you know basically creates light it's a bioluminescent strategy and um they produce 0% heat as a byproduct so their efficiency at producing light is so much better than how we have ever conducted light um, we have a lot to learn from glowworms. They're fasc- fascinating little beetles. They're not worms whatsoever. Um, they're really, really funky, and um, they spend about well, up to two years as larvae, and then you know potentially only a couple weeks in their adult form where they really glow. Or the females really glow. The males glow occasionally when they get agitated, but not to the same intensity as the females, um, and only a very, very small bit. So it's the f- females that mainly do the glowing. Um, but yeah, they're amazing animals, and it's you know. W- it's been the consensus now that they are sadly in decline in and around the uk um so yeah we really need to be looking after these amazing little beetles and and there's a reintroduction project which is run by um the Derek Gow conservancy and um keep it wild trust um with pete cooper uh who are trying to put these these amazing beetles back into the habitat again
0: Yeah, because that was one of the things that was affecting them was light pollution, wasn't it? I hadn't thought about that before when it comes to glow worms. I'm very excited. I'm going to see them at our Iron Latch Nature Reserve soon, later this month. So I have my very own glow worm experience soon, which will be fun. (laughs)
1: Great. I was only out filming them a couple of weeks ago on Pinswick Beacon. Um, Amazing. They're so cool. And you always think, oh, are you really going to see them? Like, how bright are they going to be? Are they... You know it are we talking like a really strong light, but it is it's like you've left a line of Christmas tree lights out. It's exactly like that it's like, like there's like fairy lights in the grass. they're really obvious when they start you know glowing um but they are so beautiful, they're really beautiful, but it's you know very sad that they're just being outshone by our artificial lights, and it's causing too much of a distraction for them. so yeah, but that, that's an easy thing that we can all do is just turn turn our lights off. remember to do that. You know, get if you work in an office, make sure that they turn all the lights off when everyone leaves. Don't leave your lights on overnight because it affects glowworms, but it affects those other things, you know, insects and bats and everything else. So very important, just have all lights off as best as possible.
0: And I wanted to ask you, I ask it to all my guests, what is your favourite wildlife fact?
1: Oh, that's a tricky one. uh I love the fact that sharks have been around longer than trees have been rooted in the ground. Oh wow. That's a good one.
0: That is incredible. Yeah. I'm very excited about that one.
1: Yeah it's a good one. It's just, it's a small it's a short one but it's good. Um, You know they've been swimming in the ocean longer than trees have been around so yeah pretty they're pretty impressive animals.
0: Oh brilliant and one impressive animal that you speak, speak about is the vulture because I mean I think so many people just think of them as sort of a symbol of death and don't particularly like them. I mean they're not most I guess you could say beautiful species, but they are incredibly important, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, beauty is the eye of the beholder. I mean, I think they're quite gorgeous. <laughs> like, you get up close to a vulture and you see how gorgeous its eyes are. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I wrote about a couple of different species in the book, but it's mainly the white-headed vulture. Um, and it says white-headed, but actually they've got baby blue and pink head. It's It's beautiful. It's a really beautiful bird and very big and stocky and heavy. Um, but, yeah, they have been demonised a lot. I mean, I don't think um, movies have helped. You know, Jungle Book and stuff has probably not helped the vulture's image. Um, but a lot of, you know, people think that they're kind of a bad omen to see a vulture or potentially, you know, they're, that they're a dirty animal. But it couldn't be further from the truth. They are fundamental in looking after, you know, the landscape. They clean up the landscape. They, you know, they they eat all the decomposing bodies of the giraffe. Of everything else that dies that would otherwise contaminate and pollute the landscape and could be quite dangerous, um so they come in and they're kind of nature's cleanup crew, and without them, actually well, it hasn't been proven, and we're not entirely sure how it works, but they do have some sort of link with um disease outbreaks in, in mitigating and reducing that, but we don't know how scientists are very skeptical about you know how that works if it, even if it does work and it you know how strong a link that is, so um there's still a lot to learn from how important these birds are um but they're highly intelligent they've got big personalities and big characters um and they are really really important for for the ecosystem they are you know one of the most important animals out there i think and we need to kind of reimagine their reputation reimagine their image um because you know africa asia europe would look very different without vultures um and um They're incredible all their adaptations how they're able to saw their um vision is phenomenal how they're able to spot you know these like their food basically um and um and, and and we're learning more about how they're using their sense of smell as well some species very much find their um well carrion find you know the dead uh animals through sense of smell which you know Makes sense, but we don't, we didn't, most birds don't smell very well, they don't have very good sense of smell. So, um, we're learning more about that all the time. And actually, they're not always just scavengers, they don't always just scavenge off other things. Um, either you know, they are actually quite impressive hunters when they want to be. But the problem, the, why we didn't know this before, was because they leave no trace. One of the um, scientists that I, I spoke to, Dr. Campbell Mern, who's a, a vulture specialist, has witnessed um, white vultures eating mongoose. And they hunt them and they attack them uh they fling them up in the air but they leave no trace there's not a bit of fur there's not you know a spot of blood so there is no indication that they're hunting on their own but they are um so we're learning more things about these vultures all the time they're not solely scavengers um but they play such an important role in the ecosystem we need to we need to give vultures a little bit more love
0: yeah i had the good pleasure of working with them in a previous job and they definitely had different personalities and things. I fell in love with one of our female vultures. I thought I would finish off on a question that you mentioned you'd actually asked many of the scientists in your research. And that is, are you hopeful?
1: Um, I have to be, I think is the answer to that. Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I, I kind of talk about the solutions all the time. I try and um, talk to well, as many people as I can about you know making changes either that's a a kind of a a policy level or you know an individual level you know doing what i do and and meeting all these animals and stuff i think i have to remain hopeful otherwise i probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning um so yeah i am i am hopeful i do think you know we've got a long way to go i think we're very quick to react when things get bad enough i'd argue things are bad enough now um but we're not seeing that just yet where we need to see it up in the higher levels of government and, and you know big industry. So you know until we start seeing changes there, um, you know, I'm holding my breath basically. but we will see changes there. It's just a matter of time. Um, but hopefully it, it won't be too late. but uh, yeah, I remain ever hopeful about that because we have we have to keep fighting. you know we've got to, whilst all these species are still existing and we've got a lot left worth fighting for. Um, so yeah, we've got to keep pushing as hard and as fast as we can.
0: That's all from this episode of the Wildlife Explorer. I hope you enjoyed listening to Megan's stories as much as I did. Let us know on socials what wildlife activities you guys are getting up to. And if you like this podcast, please do rate us and leave a review. It really does mean a lot. Goodbye.